Good morning, Chapel family. We're so glad that you're here with us today to worship and hear the word of God. Um, Thank you for joining us on the live stream. Whatever uh, state of mind that you find yourself in today, whatever you have been thinking about, what's been weighing on you this week, um, we want to encourage you in this time of worship to look to the Father, to meet your needs, to look to the King of Kings as your provider, as your hope in this time. So please join us as we sing today. Father, praise the Father, praise 
that were nailed to the tree as grace flows down and covers me. Sing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Amazing love, now flowing down from hands and feet that were nailed to the tree as grace flows down and covers me it covers me it covers me it covers How sweet, how sweet the sound of amazing grace. Something we cannot fully understand, but it is a free gift, your word says. In Christ, it is one for us at the cross. It is given to us your resurrection thank you for the victory and the life that we have in Christ even though what we may see around us 
is far from victorious. And we fail to see people thriving. God, may your gift, what you have given us, live in our hearts and and grow in our hearts despite what we see around us. I just speak your peace and your love over those who are watching this morning, God. That you would remind them of who you are. That you would remind them that you are on the throne. That you would remind them that we will get past this. But we are not to miss what you have for us in it now. What do you want us to see, God? Help us to see that. Help us to not be like the Israelites in the desert who complained when they had just seen you part the Red Sea. Help us to receive from your hand daily what you give us. Your manna from heaven, your bread, your bread each day. God, help us, help us to live in the day. Give us the grace to live in the day. And Lord, I pray that as Pastor Tim comes to preach, Lord, from Philippians, that you would speak to our hearts. You would use him mightily, pour your spirit out upon him to speak to hearts today, to speak a word of hope and truth and encouragement and life in the midst of the storm that would help us to keep our eyes on the one who calms the storm. We ask for your blessing. God, we ask for your power. We ask for your love to be made manifest in this place today and in every home, Lord, in every home. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, Chapel family. We want to welcome you to our service this morning. Uh, Grateful that you are joining us, whether you're listening live or you're listening to a recording. We know that the Word of God is quick and powerful and capable to assist us in gaining a proper perspective in seasons of trial. Uh, Two things I want to share with you real quick this morning. Uh, One is uh, a message from Diana Kelly. Uh, just expressing to the church family her gratitude uh, for all the displays of affection, for the cards, the phone calls, uh, the, the just multitude of prayers that have been offered up on her behalf. She wanted us to uh, express our gratitude uh, to you as a church family, and uh, I would encourage you as a church family to keep that <coughs> going. The other thing is a little bit of news in our personal family. Uh, our single daughter, Erica, is... Uh, pleased to announce her engagement this week to uh, Bobby Berezny. So we are uh, very excited about what God has for them, and we wanted you all to be aware of that in the midst of the uh, struggles and difficulties. Uh, we wanted to share some good news that would uh, hopefully be an encouragement to your heart this morning. I want you to turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 1. This is a text that I've been studying through with our men's group that meets on Monday nights. And uh, it's a text that has truly laid hold of my uh, heart in a a fascinating way. I've been almost uh, surprised by the power of this portion of scripture and its effect on my life in the in and through the current set of circumstances that we're facing and I hope that it will be an impact that lasts for a long time 
in my life even until the day that we see Jesus Christ. So Philippians 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 12 to set this context of a passage of scripture that I hope will shape your perspective in relationship to seasons of struggle and trials. I think that's the aim of this text. I think that's why this portion of scripture is recorded. It aims to help us to gain a proper perspective in spite of the negative circumstances that we are facing. So let me quick read a portion of this. I'll read 12 through verse 18. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of or by my chains... Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice, and yes, I will continue to rejoice. Now, I want you to think through this text with me this morning. I am uh, very conscious of my capacity to be impetuous, uh, to be sudden in my response to circumstances, um, Maybe uh, maybe recently you have done what I've been doing in relationship to this virus, this pandemic that we're facing. I wake up in the morning, and the first thing I do is clear my throat. And I'm kind of checking to see if there's anything going on there. You know what I'm saying? Like every little pain in my chest, every little twitch, whatever it is, there's something about me that causes me to say, that's bad. Okay? We're quick to do that. Uh, sometimes I've had experiences with, with uh, vehicles where I remember one time I heard a horrific sound coming from my car and I thought for sure this was going to cost me thousands of dollars. It turned out it was a heat shield and a loose screw, right? A quick fix, not nearly as bad as I thought it would be. We're quick to think and overestimate that it's going to be bad. I remember one time I was coming back from a class at Trinity uh, Divinity School in Chicago and uh, due to weather in Chicago, the flight got canceled. And as this was, this story of this flight unfolding was, was happening and this cancellation was coming to fruition, I was standing beside a guy in line. I can't remember his name, but I remember engaging him in conversation. We got talking and uh, hotel rooms were filling up and the cost was going up and I thought, man, this is, this is, this is bad, right? It's a bad circumstance. Well, eventually he and I decided, why don't we get a cab? Why don't we share the cost of a room? And uh, I said, okay, that would, that would be great. But man, this is a bad circumstance. Well, we got to the hotel room and before we uh, began to kind of drift off into a very light sleep that night, we got into a conversation that included a discussion of the gospel of Christ. I never found out whether this man personally responded to the goodness of Christ. But here's what I do know. That the thing that I thought was bad turned into something that was good that God could use for his glory. 
So I, I want you to think through your life. I want you to think through the current set of circumstances. I want you to think through our tendency to too quickly assess that this is bad. I think the Apostle Paul will challenge us in this regard with this thought. Your perspective in seasons of trouble is crucial to whether you face it with hope or despair. Your perspective in seasons of trouble is critical and crucial to whether you face it with despair or with hope. So in this text, the Apostle Paul is addressing people that he calls brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul had cultivated a very close relationship with the church in Philippi. If you read verses 1 through 11, you're going to find that Paul says things like this. He says, I have you in my heart. I long for you. I pray for you. And every time I think about you, I rejoice because I know that what God has started in your life, he's going to see through, through to completion. So Paul has with this church a very deep, affectionate parental relationship. And so as he writes to them, his desire is to encourage them. And what I want you to notice in verse 12 is, Paul says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And that raises a question. What happened to Paul that caused concern for the church in Philippi that Paul wants to abate? He wants to quiet the concern. And I, and I want you to watch the, in this text that I read, in verse 13 and verse 17, Paul uses the words, my chains. Okay, and what starts to emerge out of this text and become very clear is that this is a prison epistle. This is a letter that Paul is writing to the church in Philippi out of his circumstance of being sidelined, which most of us would say, oh, that's bad. That's exactly how the church in Philippi responded. When they heard that Paul was in chains, they became overwhelmed with concern that Paul might feel futile, weak, useless. And Paul writes from prison to say, contrary to fact, that what looks like a setback, what looks bad in the hands of a powerful, sovereign God can actually become a great thing. And so I want to work through this text as Paul talks about this imprisonment that he's facing, this isolation, this being kind of sidelined off the field of life. But his response in verse 12 is emphatic. It's emphatic. Listen to what he says. I want you to know that what has happened to me has served to advance the cause of Christ, the gospel. Okay, because what they're thinking is, oh, Paul's like off the field. He can't preach. He can't teach. He can't engage. And Paul writes to tell them that things are not what they appear to be. That the rumors they're hearing about Paul perhaps being distressed or depressed are, in fact, untrue. And so I want us to work through this text looking at lessons that will help us maintain a hopeful, hopeful perspective in the time of storm that we're facing. We all go through difficulties. One of my, uh, a writer that I, I can't remember his name, but I remember him saying this. He said, everybody in this world is either in a trial, going into a trial, or coming out of a trial. Jesus said, in this world, you will face troubles. You'll have tribulations. It's part of life in a broken world. And Paul's purpose in writing here is to help 
the believers in Philippi and you and I by the sovereign inspiration of God and his word to help us gain a proper perspective that will sustain us when things are good and when things appear to be bad. Okay, so let's work our way through this text. Let's pick up in verse 13 and 14. So Paul makes the proclamation. What has happened is actually served to advance the gospel. Verse 13, he's going to tell us how... God's purposes are advancing by adversity. Okay, so that's the first thought. God's purposes are in fact advanced through adversity. I want you to think about something. What was the aim of the chains that were placed on Paul by the Roman government? What was the purpose? The purpose was to silence and limit the effectiveness of Paul. Clearly the purpose. Put him in prison, shut him up. Their intent was evil, but I want you to watch what happened. And watch how Paul says this, verse 13. He says, as a result of what? Of my chains, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else. I am in chains for, that is, to the advantage of the cross of Christ and the call of Christ himself. Paul says, because of my chains, as a result of them, throughout the whole palace guard, this in Rome would be the elite force that hung out in the capital city working at the behest of Caesar. They were charged with watching Paul. And most people would say the guard is a restriction. What did Paul say? That guard is a captive audience. And so Paul took advantage of this incredibly difficult time to speak to the audience that God had brought right in front of him. The elite palace force was hearing the good news of Christ. Folks, you can't plan something like that. This is the work of God. Chains for Paul led to unprecedented opportunities that could never have been achieved in any other way. Okay, and I want you to think about that in your circumstance. The second thing Paul says is in verse 14. He says, and because of my chains, so I am in chains for Christ, verse 13, and because of my chains, that is talking about instrumentality, means, by my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now think about that. Did Rome desire to embolden the people of God? The answer is clear, no. But in the hands of a sovereign God, the limitation became a means that God used. So Paul couldn't be out there doing the work that God had called him to do. And so what does God do? God raises up an army through the witness of Paul's response, Paul's perspective. I may be bound, Paul says in Timothy, but the word of God is not bound. And what God does is he, he, he multiplies, in fact, serves to advance the gospel of Christ. Philippians 4, the end of this book, verse 22, makes an amazing statement. Paul says, all the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. And how did they hear about the gospel? 
How did the most powerful family in the world at that time hear the good news of Christ? They heard it through what seemed like a bad thing for Paul. But he responded in faith, trusting a sovereign God. And things that could never happen in good times were flowing exponentially out of bad times. And that's a perspective, isn't it? God's purposes are often advanced by and through adversity. God uses what we would often never choose to accomplish things that we could never imagine. Don't be so quick to say, that's bad. Why don't you trust God? Why don't you wait on God? Why don't you believe that God is going to cause everything in your life to work together for good? Take that step. Paul's response, I'm not bumming. I am claiming this opportunity. And the word of God and the plan of God and the purpose of God cannot be thwarted by the problems that I am facing in my life. I want you to think this morning, what circumstance in your life right now does God want you to embrace today? What circumstance does he want you to stop resenting and asking him to remove what circumstance that's difficult does he, has he brought into your life to advance his purposes in and through you? I want to encourage you this morning. Why don't you respond to God in faith like Paul did? See the limitation from a human perspective as a divine opportunity for something to happen that never could apart from your struggle and your season of difficulty. Now, Paul anticipates the response of the believers in Philippi, okay? So 15 to 18 is a disturbing text as a pastor, okay? Because what it indicates clearly is that there are times that people within the house of God, when they will, in fact, attack those that are in leadership. And Paul's saying, so he knows that the believers there are thinking. So look at verse 15. He says, it is true that some of those who have been emboldened to preach the gospel, some of them preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. And some do it out of goodwill. Sometimes Christians aren't always pure in their motivation. And the sooner you come to understand that, the better off you will be. Don't expect us, the church, to be perfect. We're telling you we're not. We trust in the Savior who restores and redeems by his amazing grace. And so what Paul does in verse 15 and 17, he concedes the point because obviously some of the people in Philippi are saying, hey, Paul, do you you know that so-and-so is preaching and trying to gain support in the church? He's trying to gain more loyalty and he's taking advantage of your imprisonment as an opportunity to build his own audience. Now, I want you to notice Paul's response to that concern. It's a valid concern. Some were preaching Christ for the wrong reasons. Paul concedes the fact. But verse 18 is Paul's perspective. Notice what he says. He says, what does it matter? Wow. You know what I call that? I call that freedom. Paul was not living for the applause of people. He was living to let people know the greatest news the world has ever heard. And that is that in Jesus Christ, there is a glorious and awesome Savior who can deliver you, not from your temporal problems, but from your eternal problems, your sin that separates you from God. And so Paul can sit back and he says, yes, yes, it's true. And it's really, it's not, Paul's not saying that what they're doing is good in terms of the motive. But notice what he does say. What they are, what they are doing is actually good 
in terms of the outcome. Okay? Paul's not dealing in the church with heretics. He's not dealing with people who are distorting the good news of Christ. He's dealing with people that are preaching the good news, but have gotten mixed in their motive. Folks, please don't be so quick to judge and think that you're not like them. Okay, we all have in ourselves a sinful tendency to want prominence, to want applause, to want approval. Paul understands they've succumbed to a circumstance. Paul's in prison. Perhaps they're thinking if Paul was a little more shrewd, a little more nuanced, a little less direct, then he wouldn't be in that circumstance. We're a little more sophisticated as teachers of the gospel. We know how to navigate the tricky uh, philosophical nature of the age in which we speak. And so Paul, he, he pushed a little far and he's, he's going to have to pay the price for that. You can, the, does that make sense? Kind of just a... And what does Paul say? Paul says, what does it matter? Why? The important thing, the central thing, the most crucial thing is that in every way, whether the motives are false or true, Paul says, you know what? Our hearts are a mess. But whether the motive is false or true, Christ is preached and because of this, I rejoice. What Paul's life was very centered on a purpose. And that was to let people know the glorious gospel of Christ. Paul put the advance of the gospel as central to his life in everything he did. He was first a Christian, right? And then a tent maker. And then first a Christian. Now, I, I I don't know how you respond to this when you look at it. Paul wanted Jesus Christ to be proclaimed more than he wanted money, more than he wanted vacations, more than he wanted health, more than he wanted grandchildren, more than he wanted a good reputation, a new job, more than he wanted freedom from prison. Paul wanted to know that the name of Christ was being proclaimed. And he said, that's the ground of rejoicing in my life. And I love, I love that perspective. Nothing else can be central to our lives like the gospel of Christ, is to be central to our lives. The things that I just listed are not bad things. Someone desiring to enjoy their grandchildren, someone desiring to enjoy a vacation or to have a different job, those are not bad things. But when they become central things, they displace what matters most. What matters most is Jesus and the good news that comes to us through him. And so Paul says, I am delighted that Christ is being proclaimed. And yes, I understand that some people are, 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 are distorted or wrong in their motivation. Paul says, but what does it matter? Here, here's what Paul says. The only thing it's affecting is my reputation. Paul says, I'm okay with that. Because my self-esteem, my happy circumstance is not the main thing. Christ proclaimed is what matters most. I've often told our church family about a man named Frank Robinson. He's the man that led my parents to Christ. And as a result, I could count off 60 to 80 people that have come to faith in Christ because of a man named Frank Robinson. He was a huckster, meaning he sold groceries door to door in one of those Grumman aluminum panel vans that are all riveted up, right? He was a huckster. But before he was a huckster, 
that sold groceries. He was a Christian who proclaimed the good news of Christ every day on his route. I thank God for people who understand that the most important task that we have as Christians is to share the good news of Christ. And when we know that's happening, even in circumstances like what we're facing, the circumstances are opportunities, folks, that God desires to use through you and I for his glory to exalt Jesus Christ. Let's move on then uh, to verse 19. Now, I want you to notice that Paul comes out of this, verse 18. He says, because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. There is, there is an irrepressible uh, uh, fountain of joy in Paul's life that relates to knowing that people are coming into relationship with Jesus, finding freedom in Christ, finding their lives transformed. And this in prison, in chains, is welling up in Paul irresistibly. The trouble has not muted Paul's joy. And as you, if you read through the book of Philippians, I'd encourage you to do it today. It's four chapters. Probably take you 25 minutes. You will find a book that is saturated with joy, but it's a book that's written out of bad circumstances because in the bad circumstance, Paul could see the good thing that God was doing. Now, the next thing that Paul's going to teach us is in verses 19 through 26. Let's just, I'll walk you through this. This text tells us, of Paul's driving desire. Verse 19, he says, I know that through your prayers and provision of the Spirit of Christ, what, was ha- what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, there's a question here whether Paul is talking about temporary physical deliverance or ultimate deliverance. And when you read through the text, you're going to see that Paul's kind of vacillating. He's wrestling with staying here and going home to be with Jesus. And he says, I am genuinely I'm, I'm, I'm wrenched, I'm torn by the, the passions that I'm feeling. My love for you and my love for Christ are, are in some way in conflict. Notice what he says. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body in prison, whether by life or death. Now, Paul's desire is that Christ would be exalted. And Paul, here's what Paul's saying. I don't care if the exaltation of Christ cost me suffering or cost me the ultimate price. Paul's saying, I, I'm, I am so settled because I realize what matters most. Verse 23, here's the way he says it. He says, I am torn between the two. That is staying and serving you or going and being with Christ. That's the struggle that Paul is having. Verse 23, he says, to be with Christ is far better. But 24 through 26, he realizes that the Philippian believers need him there even if he is in suffering. And Paul squares away with it. He says, if God wants me to stay, I am willing to stay even if it means more suffering. But I have a preference. I would love to go home and be with Christ. And I think that's a, a, just a beautiful balance in Paul's life. You see, here's what I think has happened to Paul. And I'm going to come back to verse 21 in a minute because it's central to this text. 
What has happened to Paul is it, trouble has allowed Paul to realize and see clearly what matters most. Okay, so look at verse 21. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ. Meaning, living is making Christ known. And when you live like that, death is gain. Do you see? When you live for Christ and he is your highest desire and passion, then death is transformed. It's changed into gain. You know the thing that most of us spend so much money on in this country to avoid? Death. Here's what Paul's saying. If living is for Christ, then death is the ultimate game. So Paul's conviction is this. When living is for Christ, then dying is gain, and Christ is my greatest treasure. Here's the way I like to say this. Paul had done the math in this text, right? And concluded that Christ was the most valuable thing. And I know for most of us, in terms of mathematics, which I am not very good with, Okay, this is advanced calculus spiritually. Uh, It doesn't come easy to us, but it is the mindset of a seasoned Christian who is settled into the suffering and and, and, and the happy times of life, who understands what it is to have amazing highs and amazing lows, but the thing that is most precious to them over time is Christ. And this apprehension of Christ and loving Christ and knowing Christ and treasuring Christ is something that that needs to grow in our hearts. It's not something that comes early on in your Christian walk. It's something that's developed over time. And so we need to learn how to do the math that Paul learned to do to see that to live is Christ. Then death is changed. Death is not ultimate loss. Death is in fact ultimate gain. Oh, I love that perspective. I want that perspective. It's the mindset of a seasoned Christian like Paul. And I'm going to tell you this morning, I am not there. And I envy, I envy the place that Paul is at as he writes this. I am clinging so much to what I want to see and enjoy and experience. Paul was looking just beyond those things to the greatest treasure. And that was Christ himself. I love talking with Christians who have done the math and who have concluded that Christ is ultimate gain. I want to mention two names. I don't do this to embarrass these people or to exalt them. They're just people that have done the math. They've been through circumstances I've never faced. One is Bob Dietrich. He is, uh, I believe, the oldest member of our church. I think Bob is uh, 93, 94 years old. Bob is our only surviving World War II vet in our church family. And one of the things that, that I experienced when I talked to Bob, I talked to him on the phone this week, I said, how are you doing? He said, I am so bored. <laughs> He's bored because, because Bob's passion at his nursing home at Chelsea, where many, many people have died, Bob's passion is to share Bible studies and to share with people the glory of Christ. And, and Bob has often said to me, he's pastored him, I, if I live longer, that's fine. If I don't, that's fine. He's done the math, do you see? He's settled in a place where the ultimate joy is not life itself. It's Christ in life and Christ in death that is gain. 
And the more you pour yourself out sacrificially in a Christ-like fashion for the benefit and benefit and encouragement of others, the more you will begin to realize how precious Christ really is. The other person I talked to a few weeks ago when this whole thing started is my friend Dan Slack. Uh, Dan contracted cancer two years ago, went through uh, serious times, serious difficult times. And I remember early on in that season of struggle, I remember talking to Dan at the hospital, and Dan looking at me and saying, Tim, it's all good. It's all good. Meaning, if I'm healed, that's fine. And if God takes me home, that's fine. So last week when I talked to him, I said, Dan, I said, you need to be careful that you don't get this virus. Because you're compromised. You've had cancer in your lungs. You, 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 this lymphoma that you had, it, it, you're, com- you're compromised. You, you need to be really careful. Dan looked at me and he said, he said, I fought that battle two years ago. And I concluded that to die is game. And I can honestly say from my heart, Tim, he said, it's all good. Either way. So if I get it, I, I've already fought that battle. You don't have to worry about me in that regard. I've dealt with that issue. Folks, I can't tell you how encouraging to my heart that simple conversation was. And when I read through this text, it flashed back in my mind. My conversations with Bob flashed back in my mind. If living is for Jesus, then Death is to be in the presence of Jesus. That's not bad. That's good. That's ultimate gain. Don't waste your struggle. Don't waste your difficult diagnosis. Don't waste your loss of a job. Don't waste your loss of financial stability. Let it clarify for you what really matters. Let it help you to get out your calculator and do the math. Do the hard calculus. And find that everything I have in this life is at best temporary. And that's why for a believer, if you know Christ and you know the hope of heaven to be real, then death is gain. And that's why Paul maintained a hopeful perspective in the midst of the circumstance that was seeking to silence, oppress, and ultimately it will kill him. But he dies a man of hope in the face of the greatest loss. Because for Paul, Death was gain. For Paul, hope was not driven by his circumstances, but by the one who controls him. This leads me to the last thought that I want to share with you this morning. It's this. Paul knew who controlled the storm in his life. I I want you to look at this text, verse 27. Just skip to verse 27 with me. And actually to verse 29. Here's what Paul says, and I'm going to come back to this other portion in three weeks. Here's what Paul says in verse 29. He says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of or for the benefit of Christ, not only, and he's writing to the believers in Philippi, okay, to those that have trusted Jesus. And I pray this morning, if you've never trusted Christ, that as you listen and as you observe what Christ has done for you, you will come to the conclusion, you will do the math. To have Christ is to have everything. Forgiveness of sin and eternal hope. 
Paul says, convinced of this, or I'm sorry, verse 29, he says, it has been granted to you, the church, on behalf of Christ. And notice what is granted. And the word for granted literally means a grace gift. It is a, it is a gift of favor that God is giving you. That's, and it's, it's amazing when you think about this. Because what he's going to say is going to shock your thinking a little bit. It has been given to you as a grant on behalf of Christ. Not only believing. Not only coming to a place where I say, Christ, I trust you as my Savior. As the one who bore my sin on Calvary's cross. Paul says that, that act of faith in the gospel, is a gift that God gives to you. It's granted to you as a favor. And here's the part that you're going to struggle with. It has been granted to you not only to believe, but also and therefore equally it has been granted to you to suffer for his name. That won't get a lot of amens. Okay? But that is the amazing truth that Paul knew so that in the midst of his circumstance, he's not saying, God, why me? Why are you letting me go through this circumstance? Paul knows that it has been granted to believe in Christ and be transformed, forgiven. But it has also been granted to suffer like Jesus suffered. That's why Jesus says in John 15, in this world, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. Have a high, glorious perspective. I've overcome the world. The greatest fear on this planet, the greatest fear in in relationship to the coronavirus is what? It could kill. I'm not worried about getting it. I'm worried about it killing me. Okay? I don't mind being symptomatic. I don't want to die. And, 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 and that's, that's the point of wrestling. What Paul is saying is, it has been given to you by God to believe and to suffer. And in that suffering, to exalt Jesus in a way that you never could. That's where Paul started in this text, right? Verse 13. The brothers have been emboldened to preach the gospel more boldly without fear. And at the end, Paul says, that suffering that God allows to come into your life, that magnifies Christ, is a gift from God. Paul had a good perspective in seasons of trouble because he knew that God controlled the storm. Our struggle has a sovereign purpose Therefore, and it has a sovereign limit. Folks, I want you to realize something. The greatest joy of the Christian life, the greatest achievement of Christ, came through the crucible of suffering. Your salvation, your ultimate hope that death has been defeated, and that heaven will be your home through Christ, came through the suffering of Christ. That's why the Bible says in Isaiah 53, By his wounds, you were healed. I want you to think about that. By Christ's suffering, my greatest joy is achieved. My greatest benefit, my greatest gift comes through the work and suffering of Jesus. May God make this true and real for us. And I think the the thing that Paul would want to say to you, and and just notice how he says, verse 30, he says, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying the struggle that you're going through, friend, it's not unique. 
You're not the only one. Paul's saying what you're going through is exactly what I'm going through. And I want to tell you how God is bringing me through it for his glory. I want to show you how God is giving me a new perspective on things. That is giving hope even though I'm on the sidelines. I'm in prison. But he's working in my waiting. All things together for our good. Folks, this is such beautiful territory. Your struggle is not unique. Here's the thing I want you to know from this text. The first thing Satan wants to do when you go through suffering is he wants you to think you're the only one. The first fiery dart that he's going to send at your heart is God is not good. He has abandoned you. Your circumstance is unique. And Paul says your circumstance is not. Paul says, I'm standing in that circumstance. And I want to tell you something. God is good in a circumstance that is clearly bad. But ultimately good. Because God's in it. So these, these are my thoughts. And I just, I, I just want to read these to you so you have them as, as the simple uh, principles that emerge. God's purposes are often advanced by adversity. Not in spite of. But by Secondly, God's work advances in spite of opposition. So those that were against Paul in the church weren't killing his ministry. The gospel was going forth and Paul says, I don't care as long as the goal is being achieved. Three, trouble helps us to realize what matters most, that Christ is gain, ultimate. And if I have Christ, I have everything I need. And Paul gained a proper perspective because he knew that God controls the storm that he has allowed to come into Paul's life. To conclude, I want to read this very simple observation. Paul has a robust, hope-filled theology of suffering and God's sovereignty. We, the church, often have a weak theology of suffering. So when storms come, we tend to lose hope. We tend to become weakened, right? And it's true for most of us. I want you to ask yourself the question. Is your theology of God's sovereignty in seasons of struggle robust enough to handle seasons of struggle, of sickness, of cancer, of financial struggle, of fractured relationships? Is your understanding, your theology of suffering, a robust, broad, biblical theology? I want to give you a test to see where you stand. Would you think of this with me? We support a mission work in China. Sometimes we'll get word that pastor so-and-so has been in prison. That is happening today in the world that we live in. How do you pray? I know how I pray. Oh gosh, please deliver pastor and -and so-and-so from prison. It is my instinctive response to say, that's bad. God, get him out. That's good. And my calculus is wrong. My first prayer is wrong. My prayer should be, God, give pastor so-and-so strength to proclaim Christ in that most difficult circumstance. Let him be your witness for Christ in that place. And by your mercy and grace, get him out of there. Right? It's it's a two-pronged approach. What's bad can be used. And what's good is not always best. May God help us. 
want you to think of how you pray when you first hear that someone is sick and struggling. How do you first tend to pray? I'm going to tell you what I do. I say, God, please heal so-and-so. God, give so-and-so a new job. Say, ASAP. Do it quick. Because I always think that that's what's best. That's because I have a weak theology of suffering biblically. In America, we make much of release and deliverance, but make little of perseverance and endurance and witness for the cause of Christ. I fear that we read and value parts of the Bible, but not the whole Bible. I mean, think about it. In, in a church that believes in health and wealth and prosperity gospel, how would you preach this text? How would you preach Paul's words? My fear is that we read and value parts of the Bible, but not the whole Bible. Let me be clear, however. There is no doubt that our faith and God's work have a direct correlation and that at times Jesus did not do works because of unbelief. That is true. But it is also clear from this text and many others that God designs adversity to mature and grow us. We are quick to celebrate testimonies of physical healing and deliverance, but reluctant to speak of God's sustaining, amazing grace in prolonged struggles. That's a problem from the perspective of this text and many others. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. I begged him three times to take it away. God said, no. My strength is perfected, Paul, in your weakness. That's early on. Corinthians is earlier than Philippians. This is Paul's new perspective. I rejoice in my suffering so that the power of God, Paul says, may rest upon me for when I'm weak, vulnerable, sidelined, then I am stronger than I could ever imagine. So I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to to think about how you read the Bible. I want to challenge you to think about the books that you read. I fear that we often crave, as one writer said, our best life now. And then when the inevitable storms of life that God tells us come as gracious gifts, when they come, we are short on hope because we read parts of the Bible and not the whole Bible story. The result is devastating. We end up with Christians who are anemic, who have weak hope, in the storms of life. James exhorts us in the church. James 1, I, I forget the verse. Count it joy, my brothers, when you enter into various kinds of trouble. Because you know that the testing of your faith in trials is producing perseverance. Let perseverance have its perfect work. Stay in the trial. Trust God in the trial. Let patience have its perfect work so that you will be complete, lacking nothing that you need. Folks, that does not come from good times. That comes in seasons of struggle. That comes from the crucible where God is purifying the gold of your life and driving out the dross to make you more precious than you ever imagined you could be. It is the divine design of suffering. And it will change how we face this pandemic. It will be, it'll change how we face a cancer diagnosis. It'll change how we face a financial reversal. We're looking, we're expecting, we're hopeful. 
Because we trust a God who loves us and cares for us and wants the best for us and may use pain and suffering to do his good work in our lives so that a watching world can see the power of God in your life. Like the palace guard saw the power of God in a sidelined man. They tried to silence. But you know the saying, right? You can't keep a good man down. You can't keep down someone who trusts in Christ. I pray that God will give us a robust theology of suffering. And I pray that we, in this current season of struggle, will be the church. That we will stand together as one, trusting deeply and genuinely in God's promises and in God's purposes. In all things, whether we call them good or whether we call them bad. God is causing all things, good and bad. To work together for good to those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. God, give me. Give me a robust faith. Give me a robust theology of suffering. Let us as a church be a people who are reaching out sacrificially, hopefully, and boldly to those in need in this season of struggle. Motivated by the hope that we hold on to in Jesus Christ. Realizing that this struggle is here for a God-ordained purpose. And that purpose is only fulfilled in those that don't resent it, but instead embrace it and say, God, use my pain, use my cancer, use my financial setback. Don't let me waste it. Let it be used to make much of Christ. And at the end of the day, anyone who's trusted in Christ is going to say, if Christ is being proclaimed through my suffering, bring it and use me. And I look forward to the day that you take me out of it. God help us. God help us as your church to be bold. To be robust in our understanding of the purposes of suffering. God give us wisdom to discern and to resist the allure of temporal comforts and the promise of them. God, my heart is attracted to prosperity and health and wealth. My heart wants it. Let me know that it is not best. Let me do the math. Let us do the math as a church. Proclaim by how we live that Christ is ultimate gain. And Father, help us when we are owning that truth when we understand that our, 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 our troubles, our struggles are gifts from God. Help us to receive them and say, God, do your good work in my life. Use me in the good and the bad to show that Christ is life's greatest treasure. And Father, I pray that if there is someone listening who has never trusted Jesus... Oh God, I pray that in the midst of the storm that they're facing, you will let them know that there is hope in Christ and that you will draw them to confess their sin and to place saving faith in the person and work of Jesus. God, do that good work through this pandemic, through this storm that we are facing as a community. Let the light of Christ shine like a beacon like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you're listening and uh, you've never trusted Christ and perhaps God this morning has put on your heart to respond to the good news of Christ, to claim by faith the result of his suffering, which is your forgiveness. Maybe you would send an email to the chapel at Warren Valley. Go to our website, contact us. We would love to send you a Bible. We'd love to send you uh, some information on what it means to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you need us to reach out to you, please let us know. We would love uh, to share with you the glory and grace of Jesus, our Savior. God bless you.